Hello, and welcome to the Aguilar Conversations, a global perspective. I'm Tony Aguilar. On today's podcast, the American embargo against Cuba has been in effect for over 60 years, and it's gone through 13 different presidents, starting with President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Is it time to end the embargo? Today, I will be talking with Dr. Jorge Duani, director for the Cuba Research Institute of the Florida International University, about the embargo and what will it take to normalize relations between Cuba and the United States. Dr. Duane, I want to welcome you today to the podcast. And my first question to you is, as I said, the Cuban embargo has been in place for over 60 years. And organizations like the Washington Office on Latin America say that the policy has failed. Do you agree with that assessment? Has not achieved its, its purpose, meaning uh, a change of regime in, in the Cuban government. Uh, but, but then the opinion as to whether the embargo should be lifted or maintained is more uh, divided. And so the latest uh, poll in 2022 among Cuban-Americans found that the majority actually supported. So there's a, there's a contradiction there because on the one hand, people say, most people say it doesn't work. On the other hand, say they keep, you know, they, they most, most of them say keep it. So um, the reason why I think it has remained uh, in place for so long is that despite the fact that there have been so many presidents uh, in office, the relations between Cuba and the United States, except for that brief period of time under the Obama, the last uh, uh, term of the Obama year, uh, continue to be extremely conflicted. And so the United States has insisted that Cuba make a number of changes, for example, in uh, questions of human rights and free elections and uh, the treatment of political prisoners, which the Cuban government has not uh, wanted to make. And also there are pending issues like the embargo and uh, the issue of uh, confiscated properties at the beginning of the Cuban Revolution. So for all those reasons, and of course, uh, another major uh, obstacle to normalizing relations is that there's a very strong Cuban American lobby in Washington that tends to support the status quo. Now there is a new uh, proposal by Senator Amy Klobuchar the the bill to export to Cuba Act, and that has the support of right now about four different senators, both Republican and senators, uh, and Democrats rather. But it is going to be opposed by Senator Marco Rubio and Senator Menendez. Now, let me ask you this: It seems as though people they go back and forth because your university had did a poll back in 2016 where a lot of people believe that the embargo had not worked and they wanted to change. But that shifted over time. And it seems as though any move towards normalization has to go through Miami, but then it has to go through people like Senator Marco, who has to lead on this issue, as well as people like Senator Menendez. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I think the, the fact that there are now 10 Cuban-American uh, senators and Congress uh, people uh, suggests that they do have sort of a veto power in Congress, both in the House of Representatives and, more importantly, perhaps in the Senate, 
where many of these bills uh, either uh, move or, or die out. And uh, certainly uh, the position of those two senators, one Republican and one Democrat, uh, Rubio and Menendez, is critical to any move regarding uh, Cuba. Uh, and I might re remind you and your audience that, in fact, uh, uh, recently during the uh, State of the Union address uh, by President Biden, there was an informal uh, talk after the talk by uh, President Biden approaching Senator Menendez. And uh, we heard uh, President Biden saying, we have to talk about Cuba. And now we don't know whether that meeting actually took place or what uh, transpired in it. But certainly the fact that any president and any uh, powerful politician in the U.S. has to take into account the, the powerful Cuban-American electorate, uh, particularly given the fact that Florida, at least until recently, has been a swing state and that uh, most presidents would have to uh, win in Florida in order to win nationally. You know, the British statesman Edmund Burke once said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that a representative owes more to his constituency than his labor, but his wisdom as well. Do you think people like Senator Marco, as well as Senator Menendez, are using their wisdom to help guide the people as to what the policy really should be towards Cuba, or are they just simply thinking about the next election and in Florida's case, the 27 electoral votes that's needed for, for the White House? I think, I think uh, there's no reason why we should doubt uh, the public uh, statements of these two senators, as well as the other eight, who all agree on, on the question of Cuba and the support for a, a tough policy on Cuban, uh, U.S.-Cuba relations, unless there is a substantial move in the direction of human rights, democracy, and uh, tolerance of, of dissidents. Um, so uh, I believe it's a question of principles. And of course, uh, their principles are based on their own experiences, or perhaps as in the case of uh, Rubio's uh, uh, biography, his parents' experience as exiles from revolutionary Cuba. They clearly care for the Cuban-American community, and they have very strong opinions on uh, issues relating to Cuba. Uh, and they, also, of course, do represent the majority opinion, at least as it now stands. Let me go back, uh, too, to that uh, fact that you mentioned, which was that for the first time in 2016, the FIU poll did find that the majority of Cuban Americans at that moment supported lifting the embargo. But then the opinion has shifted back to majority support, uh, especially during the Trump administration. So why did that happen? Well, what was the cause of the shift? Is it generational? Is it because of people who were born in Miami or Florida versus being born in Cuba? What was the difference there? It's hard to tell. My colleague, Guillermo Grenier, who is the uh, lead investigator of the FIQ poll, has uh, talked about the Trump factor, which uh, itself has to be explained. So there's a tremendous uh, support for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, there was uh, in the first uh, uh, administration, and there continues to be in the last 2022 poll, most Cuban Americans uh, uh, intended to vote for, for Trump uh, in, in the next election. So, um, and of course, Trump has supported the Cuban American electorate, particularly older, uh, more conservative Republican Cuban Americans, with regard to the toughening of sanctions against Cuba during his administration, but also uh, the poll found that there is a general 
sympathy among Cuban Americans for many of Trump's policies regarding China, immigration, the economy, even coronavirus, which of course was so controversial during uh, the heyday of the pandemic. So uh, I would say it's mainly uh, the reason why uh, Cuban Americans uh, return to uh, a hard policy against Cuba, an isolationist policy rather than an engagement policy, was precisely because they were following uh, the, the leadership uh, of the White House, and particularly the Trump administration. Now, you, you've spoken a lot about the protests that was happening in Cuba back in 2021, um, famous July 11th. What has happened as a result of that? And is that one of the reasons why people, let's say Cubans in America, do say we should maintain the embargo because of the protests that are happening or did happen in Cuba? Yeah, I think now, almost two years after the July 11, 2021 protests, I think we can identify two main uh, uh, results. One of them, of course, was a crackdown by the Cuban government on people who had participated in mostly peaceful demonstrations. More than a thousand people have been uh, accused of, of pretty serious crimes, uh, sedition, for example, which is punished severely in, in Cuban law. And uh, many people are still waiting for uh, a sentence, but, but clearly the Cuban government does not want that event uh, to repeat itself. And so far, it hasn't. Uh, we have seen smaller more isolated incidents of uh, protests, uh, uh, especially given the fact that Cuba has been experiencing blackouts uh, uh, for uh, the last few months. Uh, and uh, occasionally also many of the protesters will explicitly uh, call for freedom and uh, the end of communism and the dictatorship as, as they uh, frame it. Uh, but certainly this, this incident had uh, uh, ripple effects uh, all, all throughout um, the Cuban uh, nation as well as the diaspora. And of course, after July 11, uh, there were uh, expressions of solidarity, uh, not only here in Miami, but everywhere you had a significant numbers of Cuban uh, Cubans living outside. And I think that has uh, reawakened the uh, ties, the transnational ties between Cubans uh, on the island and, and abroad, and particularly pushing for <coughs> Uh, a major change in Cuban politics and the economy. Mm -hmm. Going back to the embargo for a minute, <laughs> what has been the effect of the embargo on the Cuban people? We know with, with COVID and everything that it's had a drastic effect, and the embargo certainly has not helped. When the Soviet Union crashed, um, the support that Russia gave to Cuba is no longer there. We know about the uh, Venezuelan oil uh, subsidies. That's no longer there. But what has the embargo itself done to the economy of Cuba and the people of Cuba? I think in a nutshell, the, the main response has to be that it has made life uh, more difficult for uh, ordinary Cubans, not just for the Cuban government. And it's actually arguable whether the embargo has had the effect of isolating Cuba from other countries and trading partners. In fact, the only country in the world that uh, maintains these kinds of uh, sanctions against Cuba is the U.S. Uh, and so uh, Cuba is able to trade with uh, almost everyone else, uh, but it makes life more difficult and, of course, more expensive for people to buy food and medicine and fuel. And uh, that has been a constant <laughs> story throughout the 
business of the embargo. In following up on that, most countries have condemned the embargo. The United Nations have voted to condemn the embargo for 30 years in a row. And so I, I bring it back to the original point is, where is the new thinking or some kind of different thinking about how to approach a relationship with Cuba from the perspective of the United States? I mean, Jimmy Carter tried when he was president and he lifted some restrictions and then Ronald Reagan came in and put restrictions back on. And obviously uh, Obama tried and then Trump reversed those. But is there a new kind of thinking somewhere about how we should deal with Cuba? It's hard to, to answer that question, but I would say uh, that in general, the dominant thinking has been so far, as you have described, uh, the idea that uh, the United States and other countries around the world should put pressure on Cuba to make changes. Uh, and so, uh, for example, the existing uh, laws in the United States uh, require uh, major changes in uh, elections, for example, free elections, uh, allowing multiple political parties to compete for for popular votes, uh, uh, liberating uh, political prisoners. So there are very difficult conditions uh, to be met in order for any major change, and that is uh, currently uh, the dominant policy. Now, uh, of course, there have always been uh, critics of, of the idea of uh, maximum pressure, as it was called at, uh, during the Trump administration, uh, because they don't seem to make uh, the uh, short-term or even long-term impact that uh, its supporters uh, hold. So um, given uh, that uh, uh, you know, sort of dominant uh, position, the, the sort of different thinking would have been precisely during the brief period uh, 2014 to uh, 16, roughly, when the Obama administration tried a different approach. And the approach was then, of course, that uh, you should normalize relations with uh, Cuba, which the United States did. And still, uh, there, there is a, a U.S. embassy working in Havana and a Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C. Uh, but of course, many of those uh, changes were uh, undone by the Trump administration. Now we're kind of in a middle place between the engagement policy uh, during the Obama that only lasted a couple of years and the longstanding policy of various uh, administrations uh, regarding uh, engagement, I mean, uh, isolation, and, and, and again, putting, uh, putting in place economic and political sanctions so that it would make, uh, make it very difficult for the Cuban government to uh, survive and at some point also, there has been talk of using these uh, pressures, for example, restricting travel or investment uh, or financial transactions uh, with Cuba uh, so that the Cuban government somehow would rise up uh, given the uh, intolerable <clears throat> living conditions that they're, they're suffering. That, of course, hasn't happened, except, of course, uh, you could argue that July 11 was an exception to the rule or even... Uh, a couple of other instances uh, since the 1960s. I'm thinking of the so-called Maleconazo, a uh, major street protest uh, in 1994. Now, the Biden administration has made some changes, hasn't gone as far as his former boss did, President Obama, 
He has lifted some of the travel restrictions, um, remunerations, family reunification. Where do you think the Biden administration should go next in terms of trying to normalize those relations, keeping in mind that the 2024 election is is upon us? Yeah. I would characterize the, the current Biden administration as an intermediate point, sort of a, a spreading a fine line between the Obama engagement policy on the one hand and the Trump administration policy of maximum pressure. And uh, as you know, the, the moderate changes uh, that the Biden administration has made refer primarily to his campaign promises, promises actually, that he would uh, lift some of the restrictions, travel restrictions by Cuban Americans, sending remittances. Uh, and also uh, a major change has been to staff the West Embassy in Havana, uh, not at the full uh, size that it was before the pandemic, but certainly grown to the extent that now uh, the United States Embassy is issuing uh, uh, migrant visas and family reunification visas at a level approximately to, you know, 20,000 visas per year, which has been the historic um, number that uh, both the Cuban and U.S. government had agreed on. Uh, they have not made uh, other changes that uh, would have uh, undermined the embargo. Uh, they do not allow, for example, U.S. citizens to travel to Cuba uh, freely, except under certain uh, travel conditions. Uh, and they have not allowed uh, U.S. companies, for example, to trade with Cuba, with a couple of exceptions that are uh, significant. Uh, and also I want to add that uh, another change that they have made, which has substantial implications for Cuban Americans, is that Cuban Americans can now travel beyond Havana to uh, several airports, I believe it's eight airports around the island, and that will make it uh, easier for those who have relatives uh, and uh, uh, connections uh, in those places rather than try, uh, you know, the old uh, policy was that you can only travel to Havana and then further on you have to get somewhere to Santiago, which is mm-hmm. uh, on the other side of the island. Now, there are some additional issues that are at play. I know when Raul Castro was, was president, one of the issues he had pressed President Obama on was the return of Guantanamo Bay, which the United States leases. Um, but I don't know if it's mythology or not, but the United States is supposed to pay for the lease but the word was Castro would take those checks and shove them in the drawer. He never cashed any of those. But that's one of the issues. The other issue is the harboring of alleged fugitives. Um, case in point, Joanne Chesimard, who was the, or who is the uh, godmother of the late Tupac Shakur. And the United States wants those folks back to be extradited to the United States. Does that play in negotiations with Cuba to normalize relations as well? Historically, those issues have, have been uh, at the, the table, mostly because Cuba, as you put it, uh, insists on, on including it as, as part of the negotiations. The United States has traditionally been reluctant to uh, make concessions about those two issues, Guantanamo and uh, issues of fugitives that the United States also considers uh, terrorists in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, on those uh, issues, I doubt that there will be any any movement forward, except, of course, that uh, there has been some uh, attempt by, uh, first, the, the, the Obama administration, and I understand also the Biden administration, to close down, if not uh, Guantanamo, entirely the prison, the 
prison that was in place at, at one point after 9-11 and which had hundreds of uh, uh, enemy combatants, as they were called. Now there are just a few, I think less than 100 of them. Uh, so for, for, for that perspective, I mean, that clearly was one of the main uses of Guantanamo because uh, uh, the United States did not want to have those uh, prisoners uh, in the U.S. Uh, mainland. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, Congress has not allowed uh, the closing of, of, of the prison in Guantanamo uh, um, in the past few years uh, because they have to remain in place. Other arguments uh, uh, regarding Guantanamo have to do with uh, uh, the, the fact that it's a, a major base, uh, naval base uh, in the Caribbean and that it serves to protect the southern border, uh, documented immigrants, and drug trafficking are two major concerns. Uh, but, but really, um, there is no reason in my mind that the United States could not move forward with uh, negotiating an order of departure from Guantanamo, as they did, for example, in the Panama Canal zone. And that seems to be the model uh, in which the United States might, might retain some rights to use uh, the land in Guantanamo if it uh, is able to, to uh, agree on, on principles with the Cuban government. Now, on the Cuban government side, as we mentioned, uh, Fidel Castro was adamant that uh, this was an intrusion on <coughs> the country's national sovereignty. And I think it remains... Uh, that kind of uh, intransigent position that the United States has no business uh, in another country, uh, uh, you know, uh, not, not, not even mentioning that it's uh, not a friendly country, mm -hmm. country at all. So it, the, the Cuban position is that Guantanamo is not a legitimate uh, uh, location for U.S. military activities. But of course, there is that uh, 1903 treaty with the uh, first Republican. Uh, uh, government in Cuba that makes it uh, look uh, like it's legal. You're the president of Cuba, um, Diaz-Canal, how is he doing right now? I mean, if you take into consideration the July 11th protests, the economy is pretty much in shambles right now. But there are some, but there are support groups for him. In fact, he had garnered enough support of people to come out and have protests against the protesters. So how is he doing right now, and, and do you think he can survive, and how much longer do you think he can stay as leader of Cuba? Yeah. Well, the government's staying power is actually quite impressive. Uh, I mean, everyone was expecting, for example, Cuba to fall after the fall of the Berlin Wall and disappearance of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. That hasn't happened. It's been 30 years since then. And there doesn't seem to be really uh, any sign that uh, the current uh, government in power, led by Miguel Díaz-Canel and the uh, the single party system uh, uh, based on the Cuban Communist Party, is going to crumble uh, anytime soon. However, I, I I think that the first term in office, the first five years by Miguel Díaz-Canel, were extremely problematic. Uh, among the reasons, of course, the coronavirus pandemic that affected everyone around the world, but especially Cuba, which seems to have uh, done poorly in regards to uh, protecting its population. It did develop a number of vaccines, but they came a little late in the, during the pandemic. Then, of course, the uh, uh, hostility by, by the Trump administration and the increasing of sanctions, uh, all of which, of course, now are expressed in 
tremendous levels of migration, which uh, had never been, uh, even though Cuba has been a, a migration, an immigration country since 1959, uh, we have never seen the number 300,000 or so in uh, 2022. And uh, that those numbers have uh, apparently decreased uh, this year, but still uh, there's a tremendous potential for migration, which I think can be interpreted as an expression of discontent and the widespread poverty uh, that clearly yes, yes, Canel has, has had to manage and uh, be frank, uh, has not been able to do so. Now, yes, Canel has a number of, 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 of issues uh, that make him um, quite unpopular in Cuba, in fact, although again, we don't have, uh, there are no surveys of public opinion uh, to, to talk about uh, in a scientific way. But there are expressions of, of anti-Yescanel feeling uh, for reasons. First of all, he first uh, ruler of Cuba, who is not a Castro, right? Neither Fidel nor Raúl. Uh, although he's close to Raúl, Raúl actually appointed him and chose him as his successor. But he doesn't have the charisma, and he doesn't have the uh, the history that the Castro brothers who fought in the guerrilla fights, uh, guerrilla uh, activities in Sierra Maestra. He is a post-revolutionary figure who, uh, who is mainly a party uh, member. Uh, he's been very loyal to Raul and to Fidel and his promise of his mantra actually uh, in the first five years and uh, I guess in the next ones is continuity rather than change, which I think don't really uh, fit well with the majority of the Cuban population because it, it, that some change uh, is needed. So where do you see this whole situation, let's say five years from now, at the end of the next administration, whether it's Republican or Democrat, meaning Biden being reelected, where do you see the situation with Cuba being at that point? And you yourself, you're from Cuba. Where, where do you want it to be? And what do you think needs to happen for there to be a normalization of relations between the two countries? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can't predict the, the future, but I can attempt uh, some, um, you know, uh, reasonable uh, speculation. Uh, first of all, I, I think it's important to expand the diplomatic relations, which uh, I would argue uh, were the major um, achievement of the Obama administration. Uh, many of the programs that he put in place, the People to People program, have not survived. Uh, the tremendous uh, tourist boom that uh, uh, the number of visitors from the United States uh, uh, going to Cuba. I remember the phrase was, before it changes. Uh, and I, my, my reaction to that was that Cuba is always changing, but of course maybe not as quickly and in the direction that people outside of Cuba would want it. Uh, so I think that's a major achievement and should be preserved, should be expanded. I mean, the normal diplomatic channel through which governments uh, communicate. And there have been modest uh, advances, I think, since the Biden administration took over. So, for example, there have been migration conversations that were suspended before uh, Biden's uh, time, even uh, conversations regarding uh, uh, terrorism uh, and uh, national security. There are a number of other uh, issues that are of common interest, uh, drug trafficking, trafficking persons, uh, environmental concern, because after all, Cuba and the United States are neighbors, and they share, uh, you know, um, a, a border, a, a sea border. 
between the uh, in Florida and, and Cuba. So I, I would hope that those kinds of contacts would expand and uh, become more regular so that uh, you know, grievances and uh, perspectives on both sides can be channeled appropriately. During the pre-Obama period, uh, many of these things would not even be talked about uh, at the you know, official level. Um, now, it's hard to know what will happen after the next elections because, of course, uh, as, as we mentioned before, the Biden administration doesn't seem to want to make uh, drastic changes in the existing policy, most likely because it's trying to appease the Cuban-American vote and trying perhaps, if not to win Florida, uh, at least to uh, sort of not, not lose Florida by a large margin, uh, which is, again, difficult to predict given the, the fact that Florida did turn uh, Republican uh, in the last election. Uh, but in any case, I would hope, again, that those kinds of uh, contacts be uh, preserved and strengthened. And my own, in my own experience, I think for um, people like myself, people of origin, people who have relatives in Cuba uh, and who want to uh, keep in touch with them, want to help them send money, travel there as frequently as possible, call them on the phone, send them medicine, et cetera. I think that's the most important aspect uh, of the relationship between uh, the two countries, uh, that is the, the human aspect of it. And unfortunately, in my own family and in many other Cuban-American families, those kinds of uh, normal uh, family uh, uh, contacts were curtailed for, for many years. Until 1978, for example, Cuban-Americans couldn't travel to Cuba because the Cuban government didn't allow them. And then more recently, because it's been more uh, difficult for, for Cuban-Americans to travel to Cuba. In the last moment we have, the demographics of the Cuban population is shifting in, in Florida. You're going to have younger people. Are they going to be at the forefront of ultimately changing what the policy is going to be towards Cuba? Yeah, the Cuba poll, again, which is, I think, the, the major source of information on many of these topics, suggests that the major change is not... Um, uh, by age, because in fact, uh, younger Cuban Americans, although they do support uh, more engagement with Cuba, are not becoming uh, registered massively as, as Democrats. Uh, so the community as a whole, whole remains uh, majority Republican or Republican leaning. It's the independents that seem to be growing, whereas the Democrats really remain a small minority of the total Cuban-American vote. However, we have seen some, some movement in the past uh, a few decades. Younger Cuban-Americans, those born in the United States, those who have come up more recently, tend to favor uh, some sort of uh, rapprochement between Cuba and the United States. That doesn't necessarily mean they, they support the Cuban, the Cuban government. In fact, the vast majority are, are not uh, supportive and are very critical. But... Uh, so far, it doesn't seem to be a sea change in a generational sense uh, because some of the younger Cuban-Americans who are entering politics, for example, actually are as conservative as their parents and grandparents. And on, on key issues of, of Cuban-U.S. Uh, uh, relations, like, again, human rights, democracy, uh, and the treatment of political prisoners, <clears throat> I don't, I don't think, think there is still a major shift in public opinion here in Miami. Dr. Jorge Duane has been our guest today on the Aguilar Conversations. 
Dr. Dwani, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, and we hope to speak to you again real soon about additional changes that might be happening on the island of Cuba. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in and joining us again next week as we discuss another topic of international importance here on the Aguilar Conversations, A Global Perspective.